So a um, little bit of theology today once again. You know, theology really does matter. It sounds like, oh, arcane, some people are into it, some people are not, and that's true, but theology is just the way we think about God, and it affects all of us. I mean, uh, it, affect, it can affect the way we feel about ourselves, it can affect the way we treat people, it can be the source of a lot of good in the world, and it can also be the source of a lot of harm in the world. So. It's worth paying attention to this important part of life. Um, so our, our, uh, today I want to talk about Yom Kippur, um, which I think is as a time for Christians to atone for some bad theology that they have harbored. So our Jewish friends just finished the High Holy Days, or the Days of Awe. They're called Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Culminates 10 days later in Yom Kippur, also called the Day of Purgation or the Day of Atonement. Uh, it's 10 days of communal reflection for the Jewish people on how to live well in relation to self, others, the world, and the divine. One of our, I think, sacred obligations as a congregation here at Blue Ocean is to uh, do the work of unlearning the subtle and, and, and sometimes unsubtle anti-Judaism that has afflicted too much of Christian theology, uh, especially since our in-person gathering place is hosted by Temple Beth Emmet, a reform synagogue. We can't be desecrating that space with anti-Jewish um, thinking or theology, even if it's subtle. So the tendency to mischaracterize Judaism as a religion of, you may have heard this, like a religion of dead works, of legalism, not of grace. This, this, this is bad stuff. Um, this infects uh, conservative and progressive Christian theologies alike. I see it actually as Christianity's original sin. And, and it set a pattern, it became a breeding ground for all subsequent otherings that Christianity has participated in, things like racism and homophobia. So I think of it as our work of atonement um, today to just reflect on um, the meaning of Yom Kippur. I also think it's a key to a more authentic faith for us, since what we now call Christianity actually be began, of course, as a movement within Judaism. It was part of ancient Judaism's rich diversity, composed of Sabbath-observing, kosher-keeping Jews who followed the teachings of a Jewish rabbi. Soon they were including non-Jews drawn to Israel's God through the teaching of Jesus, but doing so in a way that Jew and non-Jew could respect each other's distinct identities while living and worshiping together without discrimination based on those differing but retained identities. So Jews retained their Jewish identity. Those who were non-Jewish retained their non-Jewish identity but they lived together without discrimination. It was actually an early experiment in multiculturalism that got derailed pretty early on, and we could stand to uh, re-engage it. So let's begin with a wider context of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. This, is, uh, this uh, ritual is found in the book of Leviticus, which follows Exodus, which follows Genesis. So it's a third book in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Leviticus is a manual of temple rituals by and for priests, um, the, 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 is, the uh, Israelite priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Um, the first thing to note about all this is that 
Israel didn't invent having priests or temples or sacrifice or ritual purity codes or food laws. In fact, there was a, a rite very similar to Yom Kippur in uh, the Babylonian worship practices. Um, Israel adapted existing forms and then gave, gave them sometimes radical new meanings based on their experience of the divine. So Israel understood its temple as like God's home on earth, God lived with his people like a beloved neighbor. So the Holy of Holies inside the temple was a cube-shaped room uh, in the innermost part of the temple where the divine presence resided in all its intensity. So the power that preceded and gave, gave birth to the universe because Israel's God understood their God as the creator God uh, was concentrated in this small space, kind of like the fuel rods in a nuclear power plant, only like glorious spirit power. So the, the response to that could not be casual familiarity, but awe, reverence, trembling. Ritual sacrifice happened daily in the temple, but not in the Holy of Holies, in that cube-shaped room. Only one human, the high priest, once a year, on Yom Kippur could enter the Holy of Holies through and had to do so through careful ritual observances. So we use rituals to embody or enact values in a mode that is beyond words. So we tend to undervalue rituals. That's especially part of uh, Protestant um, Christianity, but we can't live without rituals and we do have them. Uh, sports, for example, are organized around rituals. A baseball game is a ritual. It's enacted in a ritual space, the ball diamond, uh, respecting a set of very arbitrary rules. But the enactment conveys cultural values. So three strikes you're out is, is an ethic. Um, after 9-11, George W. Bush, who actually owned a baseball team, right, the Texas Rangers, said, one plane was an accident, two was intentional, the third was an act of war. That was like three strikes you're out thinking. Three outs an inning, three sets of three innings is a game. All the elements kind of elegantly formed to, uh, to, uh, to be like a coherent thing. The arbitrary rules all conveying, uh, without words, an ethic, values. So Yom Kippur, included ritual sacrifice. The word about sacrifice, we, we tend to mischaracterize the meaning of temple sacrifice. For example, um, Christianity has produced various theories of atonement. What's a theory of atonement? It's just a way of explaining why it was necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. This is not really like spelled out in words, even in the New Testament. So people come up with theories of atonement. Why was that important or necessary or helpful that Jesus died on the cross the way he did? Well, the Protestant form reformers, so we're talking about the 17th century, pretty late in the Christian tradition, introduced a novel theory of atonement uh, that's now called penal substitutionary atonement. Don't need to know what all those words mean. It's, it's a radical break, though, from a Jewish vision of atonement, of, of making one with God. It says that God is this, this um, later novel approach that the Protestant reformers came up with 
It says that God is very angry with all of us all the time for all our sins. Even the smallest sin separates us from God for eternity, theoretically, and this separation can only be overcome, at least on God's end, uh, if God receives a bloody sacrifice, that is Jesus' death, to, again, to avert his anger. So all this fierce anger goes on Jesus as our substitute, as this theory of atonement understands it. And actually, this is, is as weird as it sounds, this is the prevailing view of atonement among evangelicals and, and many other Christians. To me, it's not helpful. God had to arrange Jesus' death to satisfy, satisfy God's own anger. To me, it puts God in a bad light, but it also misrepresents what the temple sacrifices were about in, in um, Judaism's sacred writings. So it turns out the temple sacrifices were not about appeasing an angry God. Remember, the temple was God's home. So bringing an offering of grain or wine or meat was understood as like sharing hospitality with God. Like you might take a bottle of wine to a friend who has invited you over to dinner. So the priests ate a portion of the offering, whatever it was, as did the worshiper, the person who brought the offering, and it was all a sign um, when the priests ate the offering of God's acceptance, like we're good, we're okay, we're, we're, we're neighbors, we're having a meal together. The altar of sacrifice was analogous to the Israelite dinner table. So here's the thing, the main temple sacrifices were not focused on sin. So Leviticus opens with five chapters, each one dedicated to one of the main primary um, sacrifices. There was a burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace or well-being offering, the purification offering, and the guilt offering. Sometimes they go by different names. The burnt offering signified prayer, like the aroma of the burnt offering ascending to heaven was understood as prayer. Uh, the grain offering or the meal offering was bread offered to God. Same idea. Uh, the peace offering um, ex was really used to express thanks to God on the part of the worshiper. The purification offering uh, dealt with ritual impurity only. But that was a, a, a natural condition with no moral implications whatsoever, ritual impurity. The guilt offering was focused on inadvertent offenses. So even the thing called the guilt offering wasn't, wasn't like what we think of as intentional sin. It was inadvertent offenses. So the main temple sacrifices were not about calming a God enraged by human sin. You can argue, argue that their focus with, on sin actually was pretty marginal. But what about the bloody animal part of some sacrifices? Man, that to us, that just seems so, so brutal, so primitive, so cruel. Except it actually wasn't. The ritual sacrificial system placed actually severe limits on which species could provide meat for the Israelite table. Among the four-legged creatures, the quadrupeds, 
only three were allowed to the Israelite, cattle, sheep, and goats. So in Leviticus, the Israelite could only eat beef, mutton, and goat, and only what had been brought to the temple for sacrifice. That puts some real limits on meat eating in Israel. So they weren't grabbing drive-through burgers uh, or, or, you know, coming home from work and grabbing a, a cheap rotisserie chicken from Costco willy-nilly. Plus, their animals that were used for sacrifice lived great lives under the care of a shepherd who knew them as individuals. The means of ritual slaughter for the sacrifice had to be quick and as painless as possible for the animal. All to say, before we get judgy about this ancient practice of animal sacrifice, we should remember it was ethical light years ahead of our brutal, modern, cruel treatment of animals raised for food. So that's the wider context of ritual temple sacrifice, of which Ram Yom Kippur is a special once a year example. So during Yom Kippur, as the reading said, Nathan did for us today, two goats were chosen um, by lot. Only one was sacrificed on behalf of the high priest who would enter the Holy of Holies and only on that sacred day. When the high priest came out, he laid both hands on the head of the other goat while he confessed the transgressions of the entire people. So if you think about it, Israel was not obsessively focused on sin, which is kind of a spirituality that spread in some Christian traditions. Uh, no, once a year they dealt with it and they did so communally. Like the focus wasn't on the individual. I mean, the individual is part of the community. It was a communal experience though. And it happened once a year. So remember, only one of the five regular sacrifices in the temple dealt with sin, and that was inadvertent sin. So on Yom Kippur, they dealt with like the whole range of transgressions. Robert Alter, the Jewish scholar, a translator of the Hebrew Bible, describes it as dealing with the accumulated sins, transgressions, pathologies, and inadvertencies of the Israelites that were imagined to have like built up a kind of smog of pollution that threatens the sanctity of the temple. So the temple was cleansed, not the people on Yom Kippur. So this creates a very different psychology around the, the phenomenon of sin, um, much different than like sending a middle schooler off to a retreat weekend where they hear a talk about how their little sins meant that Jesus had to die a horrible death to keep God's anger from striking them down. Talk about internalized gloom and doom. Um, just a side note, Jacob Milgram, the Jewish scholar of Leviticus, says the earliest version of Yom Kippur was actually a day of joy, not gloom. It was a day that would end with maidens dancing in the vineyards of Israel. Back to that second goat, though, over which the high priest, um, in a sense, transferred confessing the sins of the people as he laid both hands on the head of the goat. It, it wasn't sacrificed, the goat, but it was released into the desert. So this goat wasn't for the Lord to blunt God's anger, but it was actually for Azazel, A-Z-A-Z-E-L, 
Azazel, strange name. It was kind of like a mystery name. The um, rabbis identified it with an ancient deity demon of the desert. Again, not invented by Israel, but borrowed from the surrounding nations. So it's not an offering to Azazel, since it's not a sacrifice. It's sent to the place associated with Azazel, the Judean wilderness. The idea was taking the sins of the people like away from the people. We hear echoes of this notion when John the Baptist, the forerunner prophet to the ministry of Jesus, said at the start of the public ministry of Jesus, which John the Baptist was endorsing, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, let's, let's get rid of this stuff. So let's remember, remember rituals are physical enactment, enactments. They're, they're bodily events, the, the things we do, uh, gestures, all sorts of different physical enactments. The ritual itself conveys the meaning through enactment, which may include words, but not usually, it doesn't usually include an explanation. Any word-based explanations come later and can only be secondary and, and kind of speculative. Thus do rituals make room for many meanings. Kind of like a piece of art, you go to a museum, you're looking at a piece of art, and you know, they, it, it jogs your memory, it makes you think about different things. You don't ask the artist, what did you mean by that? You know, they all go like, well, what does it mean to you? Like a piece of art, different aspects of the ritual connect with different aspects of our experience at different times in our lives. So that ritual of laying the hands on the scapegoat to, um, and that's what it was called in, in the text of Leviticus, that's where we seem to get the term scapegoat, which came to mean, um, the, the meaning of that was kind of developed in human history up to our time. The ritual of laying hands on the scapegoat to transfer the sins of the people reminds me of the psychological mechanism that we call projection. There's projection and there's transference if you're a psychology. What's projection? Well, projection is our tendency to see in others what we don't like in ourselves, kind of to divert attention away from ourselves. That's kind of like the motive of the unconscious motives of projection is we, we'd rather see the things that we hate in ourselves. We'd rather see them in others so that we can kind of hate them in others instead of dealing with them ourselves. Well, the ritual reminds me of that psychological mechanism. The ritual reminds me that guilt can show up in our bodies like a physical weight. How, how does it feel in our bodies when we're dealing with guilt? You know, we, we hang our heads, our shoulders slump. We're not, we're not, you know, we're not sitting up straight. In the, in the ritual, we see it treated like that. Uh, the sins of the people are like a, a physical thing that are transferred to someone else, this, the scapegoat, and they're taken away. Conveys like to, to have, a, to imagine that process or to participate in it. Uh, I can only imagine the physical sense of relief that would come. Another connection that occurs to me, I notice the scapegoat, that second goat, is not for the Lord. It's, it's not sacrificed to the Lord. 
but it's released into the desert, which is thought to be the place of this demon figure, Azazel. Makes me think, you know, humans at our worst, we do turn on innocent victims who are thought to be guilty but aren't. So like anti-Semitism, misogyny, white supremacy, colonization causing cultural and literal genocide of indigenous people, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia. You know, these are like nation-sized iniquities that represent humanity at our absolute worst. I mean, just think about it. What a crushing burden these things place on, on dear people who don't deserve it. And, and, and by our individual silence or by our refusal to acknowledge and repair the wrongs done by these things, we can participate in this evil. So that's the thing. We, we can be part of loving communities, loving families, but those loving communities and families can also morph into like a mob mode. And that whole thing, just it just seems demonic to me. So this too is the kind of meaning we might access as we imagine the enacted ritual of Yom Kippur in Leviticus and, and many others. So rituals can help us grapple with our human experience. Um, most rituals uh, defy like a simple single explanation. We have rituals because some meanings are beyond words. What's the meaning of death? What's the meaning of childbirth? What's the meaning of beauty? What's the meaning of suffering? What's the meaning of joy? The most profound human experiences have a meaning that um, it just defies words. So yes, the death of Jesus and its commemoration and communion, which we'll celebrate shortly, has echoes of Yom Kippur. Uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a servant who either was Israel or represented Israel, who bore the sins of the many. That resonates with the image of the scapegoat on Yom Kippur. All of this can be part of the meaning matrix that informs our communion celebration, our understanding of the meaning of the death of Jesus. But these rituals, Yom Kippur on the one hand, um, the Lord's Supper, communion, or the Eucharist on the other, they're distinct. They stand alone, but they can stand side by side. The communion ritual doesn't have to supersede, let alone replace the ritual of Yom Kippur. It, it can simply be informed by it. And a lot of Christian theology says, well, Judaism, yeah, that's one thing. It was good for its time. But now we have Christianity, which supersedes Judaism. That's like, you know, random memory. I'm in the hospital at age six after getting my tonsils out. You, you stayed in the hospital for a couple of days back then when you got your tonsils out. You know, my throat is raging, burning. They give you ice and eventually you get Verner's and you get, you get treats. It was awesome. But the first couple of days, bummer. And I can just remember all us boomers were getting our tonsils out at the same time. First sore, sore throat, boom, yank the tonsils. But uh, and I can remember I was in the hospital 
uh, with this pediatric ward, I guess. I'm, I'm having an argument with my six-year-old roommate, and somehow we get on the, to the topic of our dads, and we're arguing about my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> well, that's the emotional level of the idea that Christianity can only be good if it's better than if it supersedes Judaism. Almost done. Falling in love is like a multifaceted phenomenon, right? I mean, if a partnership is forged uh, upon falling in love or as part of that phenomenon, it often entails getting to know a family you didn't grow up in. And it's generally best to focus on the, the in-laws' uh, good points <laughs> and not to be overly critical. In my case, um, I call it Hutterland. Um, Hutter is my my uh, spouse's um, family name, Julia Hutter Bailey. Uh, that Hutterland is like my partner's a very expansive family. I came from like a small family growing up, and and this this family is like cousins and cousins and cousins, and they all know each other's names. And wow, it's expansive. And they have a very distinct culture. Um, they're into puns. They're into crossword puzzles. Uh, an inordinate number of them play the recorder, the recorder flute. They have a treasury of stock jokes that they like to tell over and over. They trend nerdy. They break into songs sometimes, like it's the sound of music. I I'm just mentioning the charming things. So I will admit that I, I came from... Um, a brief, maybe five-year foray into atheism, into faith in God when I became intrigued with the Jesus I met in the Gospels. His vision of God moved me. His just way of doing, doing God, as I think of it, moved me. It, it, the process for me was akin to falling in love. It had that fascination, it had that thinking. It's like, wow, phenomenon. I'm just, I'm just telling you my experience. I'm not claiming that my experience is normative. I don't think it is. It's just one possible way of engaging this. And Jesus for me has become like a recurring and organizing reference point in my life. Um, we have those figures in, in our lives. So Jesus and I have had our rough patches, our miscommunications, like any meaningful personal connection that's enduring. You know, so I, I like, I know him, I don't know him. Like any personal being, there's mystery. He's multifaceted. You know, later in life, I saw, oh, Jesus has a feminine side. I, I, I call that feminine side uh, Sophia, uh, which is a tradition in, in Israel and, and that region of the divine feminine. So thanks to my non-binary friends, I realize now I can experience Jesus as a non-binary they. They are a portal into the divine for me, but they come with a family, with a culture different than the one I grew up with, a Jewish family rooted in the culture of ancient Israel, branching off like families do in many different directions. So Temple Beth Emmet, um, the, the Reformed synagogue that's one of our hosts when we meet in person, those of us who can uh, on Sunday, is part of one of the branchings. It's called Reform Judaism. I don't need to adopt this Jewish culture as my own, like lock, stock, and barrel, but I can learn to appreciate it on its own terms, 
just like I didn't become a Hutter, but I'm now part of Hutterland, and Hutterland affects me. My my the effect uh, the kids call my effect Dad 2.0. So these are my thoughts this morning. After our uh, Jewish friends have completed their ten days of awe, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, culminating in Yom Kippur. I hope it opens our hearts to some of Judaism's ancient traditions and values. And I hope it helps us sort through our own vision of God and maybe appreciate the value of rituals with ancient roots as a thing worth considering. Now let's turn it over to Diane, um, who will lead us in a body awareness meditation, a, a kind of a good transition to and preparation for our rituals, uh, the lighting of the candles and communion. Take it away, Dai Dai. All right. Well, begin by making yourself comfortable. Sit in a chair and allow your back to be straight, but not stiff, with your feet on the ground. Allow your eyes to close or to remain open with a soft gaze. Take several long, slow, deep breaths, breathing in fully and exhaling slowly. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. Feel your stomach expand on an inhale and relax and let go as you exhale. Begin to shift your attention from outside to inside yourself. If you're distracted by sounds in the room, simply notice this and bring your focus back to your breathing. Now slowly bring your attention down to your feet. Begin observing sensations in your feet. You might want to wiggle your toes a little, feeling your toes against your socks or shoes. Just notice without judgment. You might imagine sending your breath down to your feet as if the breath is traveling through the nose to the lungs and all the way down to your feet, and then back up again through your nose and lungs. When you're ready, allow your feet to dissolve in your mind's eye and move your attention up to your ankles, calves, knees, and thighs. Observe the sensations you're experiencing throughout your legs. Breathe into and breathe out of the legs. If your mind begins to wander during this exercise, gently notice this and bring your mind back to noticing the sensations in your legs. If you notice any discomfort, pain or stiffness, don't judge this, just simply notice it. Observe how all sensations shift and change moment to moment and how no sensation is permanent. Breathe into and out from the legs. Then on the next out breath, 
Allow the legs to dissolve in your mind and move to the sensations in your lower back and pelvis, softening and releasing as you breathe in and out. Slowly move your attention up to your mid-back and upper back. Become curious about the sensations here. You may become aware of sensations in the muscle or points of contact with furniture. With each outbreath, let go of tension you are carrying. And then gently shift your focus to your stomach and all the internal organs here. Perhaps you notice the feeling of clothing, the process of digestion, or the belly rising and falling with each breath. If you notice opinions arising about these areas, gently let these go and return to noticing sensations. As you continue to breathe, bring your focus to the chest and heart region and just notice your heartbeat. Observe how the chest rises during the inhale and falls during the exhale. On the next out breath, shift your attention to your hands and arms. As you exhale, you may experience the arms soften and release tension. See if you can channel your breathing into and out of this area as if you were breathing into and out of your hands. Continue to breathe and bring your awareness to the neck, shoulder, and throat region. This is an area where we often have tension. Be with the sensations here. It could be tightness, rigidity, or holding. As you breathe, you may feel tension rolling off your shoulders. On the next out breath, shift your focus and direct your attention to the scalp, head and face. Observe all of the sensations occurring there. As you exhale, you might notice the softening of any tension you may be holding in your jaw. And now, let your attention expand out to include the entire body as a whole. Bring into your awareness the top of your head down to the bottom of your toes. Feel the gentle rhythm of the breath as it moves throughout the body.
As you come to the end of this practice, inhale and exhale fully. When you are ready, open your eyes and return your attention to the present moment.